What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another amazing episode of Bitcoin and Markets, live streaming on YouTube, Twitter, and my home base of Telegram. So today we are going to cover a discussion, a little tweet back and forth I'm having with Luke Groman at this time. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think that he's right, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. And this is one reason why I do the show is so I can learn and you guys can learn along with me understand what's going on in Bitcoin and in macro. That conversation was about inflation. So we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit. We're going to go over the Bitcoin price. Are we finally going to break through 25,000 and go to the upside? So we're going to look at the charts, charts for that. So this is just a weekly chart of Bitcoin. You can see we're coming up on multiple resistance areas. We have passed the 50 week moving average, but we're bumping up on the 200-week moving average, which is sitting at 25,110. So it's right around that 25,000 psychological level. We have broken 25,000 a few times in the last few days, but have not you know, been able to break above that. I think when we do, it's going to be pretty big. Another indicator I can throw on this chart is the TD sequential. This is one that kind of tone vase introduced me to and it's a time-based indicator as well as uh, a psychological indicator like how long have we been in a trend and what what's likely to come next uh, these numbers count up till not to nine both in the red and the green direction and at nine we should expect a consolidation or or a reversal and what we're seeing now is we're on a green eight so uh, we're getting close to the end of this kind of uh, bullish momentum. But if we go back in time where I think that the thing that we're really mirroring here or that we are replaying almost in real time is this 2019 breakout. So back here, you can see we hit a green nine and that should have signaled some sort of consolidation or reversal. And it did. We had about three weeks of consolidation before we continued higher. And you can see that there's no count above this. And that's because it's just extremely extended. Okay. This is just an overheated wow rally is what it is. Um, And I think we probably are going back towards something like that. Remember, Bitcoin, I believe, is going to be dominated by price movements, like repricing events. Okay, and repricing events are going to happen so fast that people don't have the ability to get in. The market doesn't, it chooses the path of least resistance, but also the path of most pain for most people. And what is the pain of going up quickly? Well, it's FOMO, it's the people that didn't buy in. You know, they aren't off zero yet. And so Bitcoin is going to reprice to keep them from getting in. Then, you know, after a couple of weeks, they're like, oh, this move is for real. I better get in. And then all of a sudden Bitcoin corrects 25%. And then they sell, they sell the dip. Um, That is, I think the path of most pain is a quick repricing event followed by an extended period of consolidation. Like we did see after the 2019 blast off, we had about six to nine months 
of consolidation. And of course, COVID smashed the price down. I, I believe that we're almost about ready to turn around back in 2019. But actually, let's just go go ahead and go back to that. All right. So this is what I'm looking at. This period right here in February of 2020, it did look like we possibly, that could have been the breakout that we were waiting for. And that would have been from roughly June through February. So nine months of consolidation. Then COVID happened and the halving was right there. And we did recover before the halving. COVID kind of just delayed this bull market by a while. Anyway, if that is kind of what we're looking at now, we could rally to 50,000 in in just a few short weeks, like one month time. And then we have nine months of consolidation before the next leg up, you know, and there'll be all of these people saying, oh yeah, of course, Bitcoin is, it's gone from 50 now to 40 and it is dead now again, right? It's going to give all those people time to FUD it. Peter Zion will have time to FUD Bitcoin and all of that. But then the next repricing event will happen and it, who knows where the top could be. Um, I've measured out a few things and put them out on the premium market pro of what the cycles could be like if it is a repeat of say 2017 or 2021, like what uh, are kind of the ballpark estimates we're looking at and why I think that both of those scenarios are possible this time. So make sure you check out that premium market pro tier. And when you sign up for the first month, you can get 50% off by going to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash pro 50. And of course, you can read all the previous reports. All right. So that is the price. Let's get into this discussion I had with uh, Luke Groman. And it started, he was talking about 1970s inflation. And I'll just read this out. He says, these days, Many discussed the Fed's inadequate response to inflation in the 70s, but almost no one sees, seems to discuss the role Vietnam War deficits played in triggering that inflation. Let's watch. And then he quote tweets somebody there. Lynn Alden comes in and says, a related problem is that most people's mental models for inflation was the 1970s, and that was primarily lending-driven inflation. Oh, lending-driven inflation? You mean Actual inflation, like that's what inflation is. That's what money printing is, uh, boosted by fiscal Vietnam and great society. Whereas 1940s and the 1920s, or sorry, 1940s and 2020s and the 1920s in Europe, inflation is primarily fiscally driven. I mean, there is no such thing as fiscal driven inflation. It's you can have fiscal driven price increases. But inflation is money printing and fiscal spending is not money printing. And I responded to Lynn, of course, it's fiscal due to supply crises, right? So we had a supply crisis that the fiscal spending was a response to the supply crisis. So the supply crisis actually lowered supply and the fiscal spending increased demand. So we had two opposing forces here, right? Or two, uh, I guess, coordinated forces to push prices higher. And even with that, guys, even with that, even with shutting down the economy, you know, having the biggest supply chain crisis since World War II, 
and massive, massive fiscal spending. Remember, they said they were saying 40% of all dollars were printed in 2021 or whatever it was. So massive fiscal spending, massive supply chain crisis. And where did prices go? Prices only went up 10% annualized. 10% annualized. I mean, total, I mean, if you would sum up the last, say, two years of price changes, you probably would get to 20%. But 20% price increases when we had this unbelievable fiscal response and supply chain crisis at the same time, something doesn't smell right here. Something doesn't add up. Okay, then Luke Groman, I mean, he started, this is his thread, and he responded to me. He said, if by supply crises, you mean, quote, a supply of enough U.S. dollar liquidity, end quote. Totally off base, in my opinion. Uh, I say no supply disruptions in goods. To Lynn's point, the main problem with people's mental models for inflation is they call everything inflation. Lower, slower supply of goods and pulling demand forward with fiscal spending is not inflation. Prices can rise for many reasons. And I'm probably a broken record to you guys here on um, if you follow my content, because prices go up and down for many reasons. And then he responds uh, that he likes to use extremes to inform the means to stress test views. I mean, that's rhetorically pretty. Uh, he, he's obviously good at writing. Uh, under your definition above, Weimar German in hyperinflation was not inflation. It was just a lower supply of goods and pulling forward of demand with fiscal spending. But if that wasn't inflation, nothing is inflation. My point is, how do you discern when prices going up is inflation and when prices going up isn't inflation? And that's a very good question. That is an honest question you should be asking. But the Weimar Germany thing is totally off base. I, I say that, uh, you know, it's completely different from today. They had a gold peg and they used paper money and they literally printed the paper money. Uh, so it wasn't like what we have today at all. Completely different time, completely different era. Like we don't even have the option to actually print money today. The government has a certain amount of cash. Like if they printed just more $100 bills, if they printed $5 trillion bills or not, you know, $5 trillion worth of $100 bills and they just started handing those out, that would be very inflationary. That would actually be inflation. But fiscal spending is not that. Okay. They bar, they're borrowing that from somebody else. They're pulling demand forward. They're not actually printing new money. They're taking money out of hoards and spending it today instead of pushing that demand back to the future. And what happens when you do that? Then you have a hole of demand in the future. And I talked about this that, you know, Janet Yellen and Biden, they were talking, they were celebrating how they cut the deficit by 1.5 trillion. Well, to me, that says we are super happy that we're leaving this gaping hole of demand right there in the future. It's just a year or two away. They're celebrating that because they don't understand how this works. Okay. So I say that is the question when he said, how do you discern prices going up, which is inflation and which is not inflation? I said, Without an, it's without an easy answer because we can't see much of dollar creation globally and it's a complex system. So we must start with interest rates and negation of things that haven't caused prices to rise 
on a consistent basis in our modern system. So we can't say QE is money printing because QE has not led to consist, uh, price rises on a consistent basis. We can't say fiscal spending is money printing because it hasn't led to uh, consistent price increases. You know, you had since the great financial crisis, 12 to 14 years, depending on how you count it, of QE. Yet it took COVID to cause uh, CPI over 2.5%. And we'll get into that here a little bit more. An example of the complexity is that while fiscal spending is not technically money printing, it does cause a temporary boost to actual credit creation, money printing through false economic signals. And I talked about this, that you pull demand forward. It makes people feel a little bit more flush with cash. They go out and spend. Maybe the banks think that, you know, people look like better credit risks. So they actually do extend more credit. Also, your margins might be higher. So you're going to go out and demand more loans to expand your business. Maybe you think you, you want to add a new assembly line to your factory because everything is, you know, all that demand was pulled forward and you think it's your, the economy is doing really well. So yeah, these false economic signals can lead to actual money creation, but the fiscal spending itself is not technically money printing. How much is this effect? I said that this actual money printing can result from fiscal spending. And I say, again, we have to look at interest rates. If prices are rising at 10%, but forwards and break-evens are 2.5%, uh, can say roughly 2.5% from money printing. And the rest is other factors. And I did pull up this, this chart. Um, this is the five-year, five-year forward, which is the gold standard for inflation expectations, five-year break-even, and the 10-year break-even. And you can see they're all kind of consolidating right now around 22 to 2.5. And they haven't really budged. I mean, the five-year did get up to 3.3, but most of these have been very consistent throughout the years, uh, printing pretty close to the CPI, printing pretty close to inflation. So we can say that these things right here on the chart give us a very good understanding of actual money printing going on. Everything else above and beyond this, so the CPI got to what, 9.7 or something in the U.S.? Um, 9.7, but these break-evens were around 2.5. That would be, yeah, uh, three-quarters of the CPI was not from money printing, from this pulling forward of demand effect making people go out and expand credit. That accounted for 2.5% of the total 9.7%. Uh, that's that's how I look at it. But this is not an exact science. We can't know this for sure because we have credit-based money. If we had commodity money, we could look at the, the supply of commodity, like uh, the gold or the Bitcoin in the reserves, and then we could look at the amount of circulating money or cash and compare these and see, you know, what was actual money printing. Uh, but we can't really do that here. We have to use different numbers to get an idea of what's going on. All right, let's go back to this thread. He said, if deficit spending occurs in the context of QE, it is absolutely money printing per Bernanke. I mean, that's wrong. That's completely wrong. 
deficit spending is not money printing. It is borrowing money, literally. That's why it is debt, because it is being borrowed from somebody, right? There wouldn't be a national debt if it were money printing. Think about this in a balance sheet. If I have a balance sheet, the government balance sheet, and I print money, my assets are going to go up, but not my liabilities are not going to go up. I'm printing money out of thin air. My liabilities don't increase. Just my assets increase. Borrowing of money, the government debt, it's a liability. So this is not money printing. They're borrowing it from somewhere. They're borrowing it from savings and pulling it forward. And then in the context of QE, what he what he's saying here is by adding this into the, the formula here, by saying you're monetizing the debt, the Fed is monetizing the debt, but they're not doing that either. They are swapping for, it's an asset swap. So deficit spending is not money printing and QE itself is not money printing, but somehow when we put them to the two together, we get money printing. No, that's not how it works. All right, guys, breaking in on the edit in our kind of after show that we do a little bit on Telegram after the live streams. Point BTC brought up that Luke would argue against this saying, well, look, the government is creating debt, right? It's government debt. And the process of making a loan from a commercial bank is creating debt as well. So aren't these two types of debt both credit creation? Sounds very plausible, and I can see why there's a lot of confusion on this. But that's not the case because when a, a bank makes a loan and you watch the balance sheets, okay, you, you have like a back-end access. Richard Werner has done this, I think, multiple times now. Um, when you watch a bank's balance sheet and you say that they're fractional reserve or whatever, so maybe they're 95% or 90% fractional reserve, so when they make a loan, they would have to check how many, how many reserves they have. 5% of the, that money would come from somewhere, right? It would come from their reserves into a new, into your account. And 95% of that money would be created out of thin air. Um, but that's not how it happens. Actually, you have 100% is created out of thin air. Nothing comes out of anywhere. It just is poof. You have now the bank has an asset liability and you have an asset liability poof out of out of nothing. But when the government borrows money and you're watching the balance sheets, that money is moving from somebody's balance sheet entry to the government's balance sheet entry. Okay, that money is not created in the process of the government borrowing it. It's coming from savings somewhere else. Nothing is created in that exact scenario. Where money is created is once the government spends that, it changes economic signals, and then the banks can go out and create credit. This is, it's actually works the same way that QE is supposed to work. QE is not supposed to be money printing. QE is supposed to fix the balance sheets of the banks, you know, the impaired assets how it started in the great financial crisis. It's supposed to take the mortgage-backed securities, the, the bad assets off the bank's balance sheets, replace them with pristine assets of reserves held at the Fed. That way the bank feels better and they go out and make loans. Now they have a better balance sheet, they can go out and make loans. 
So that, that's where the money printing happens, when the banks go out there and poof it into existence. QE is an asset swap. Fiscal spending is taking money from somewhere else and then spending it. I hope that makes it more, you know, makes more sense. Yes, you call government debt and a bank loan is a debt, but they're completely different on the mechanics of how they actually work. All right. I think that was clear. So, all right, let's get back into it. Okay. To the extent the Fed's balance sheet never reverted to pre-GFC levels, and the U.S. government ran deficits all those years, the Fed effectively printed $7.5 trillion in the past 14 years. And I say, there is only circular evidence to support this claim. You know, I would say, look, the prices really didn't go up for 12 years. But they'll say, look, prices are going up. And we said for, for 14 years that there was a bunch of money printing. So it must be that the prices are going up because of the money printing. There's no predictive power at all in this. And I think Luke has a problem with having a model that has predictive power. So I say there's only circular evidence to support that. They, they printed $7.5 trillion and quote-unquote inflation didn't go much over 2.5% for 12 years is what you are going, going with. Okay, so I kind of should have stated that better. That's what I'm talking about by these things that we can negate as possibilities. It wasn't until COVID that we got higher CPI. All this to say that uh, I think Lynn Alden, going back up here to her initial image. All right. Sources of U.S. broad money creation, 1913 to 2022. First things first, the system we had back in 1913 is much different than today. They had a gold standard until 1971. And yeah, you could say it was kind of perverted before that, but it was still a gold standard. So there are some differences here, obviously, when we talk about a credit-based standard versus a gold standard. So it's very hard to compare these types of, these types of um, eras in the monetary system when they are so different. All right, but anyway, what, this blue line is the fiscal deficit and it just happens to also be supply chain crises, right? Like look at this one in World War II and World War I. There was a lot of fiscal deficit spending, but that was because of supply chain crises. And that's why my initial response was fiscal due to supply crises, right? Because that is what it is here. That's why I think today is much more like 1947 than it is like 1977. Really, she could get rid of all of this and just leave this orange line. And what would it look like if she did that? Well, it would look like it's decreasing under 5% now and not going higher. That is actual inflation out there it is the orange line. That's all she would have to do. And we could actually backwards engineer this with the orange line and CPI. And we could look at what that means for deficit spending and money growth. So we can reverse engineer this. All we need is new bank loans. And that's it for today, guys. I uh, want to thank you for joining me. Bitcoinandmarkets.com is my website for all of my content. So if you miss anything, you can always go to the podcast feed or the website and find that. Also, join me on telegram.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. 
to join the discussion on a daily basis about macro, about Bitcoin, and all of that stuff. So that's going to do it for today, and I'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye.